But at some point, I leaned into that, and I'm still leaning into that and all kinds of other issues. And that's the only way I can have freedom around that is to break down the belief systems around that and like rebuild using the 12 steps and using all the other programs that I have, like Agape and Science of Mind and all these different spiritual principles that I've learned. So it's, in two words, just like lean in. There's someone in the 12-step program that will help you. There, If you just lean in, you'll find your answer. That was Joseph Naus, and this is The Recovery Revolution. It's time for the Recovery Revolution podcast, and it is unlike any recovery podcast you will ever experience. This is next-level recovery transformation featuring the most influential minds in addiction, recovery, sobriety, mindset, and entrepreneurship. We are transforming the stereotypical mundane process of recovery into one of finding your own personal path to empowerment. This podcast will revolutionize the way you look, feel, and talk about recovery. This is The Recovery Revolution. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of The Recovery Revolution. And today we have my good friend, Joseph Naus, joining us as our featured author and guest spotlight. Joseph was episode number 72 of the Share Podcast, Straight Pepper Diet, where we go in depth about his book, and today we talk about his life after writing Straight Pepper Diet and his new book that will be hitting the presses very soon. So without further ado, let's dive into this author spotlight with Joseph Naus. but first, a quick message from our sponsors. Are you happy and thriving in your recovery? Do you feel happiness, fulfillment, and joy in your family, business, or personal life? Or do you feel stuck? Do you feel like something's missing? You may not be able to quite put your finger on it, but something is just not right. Now, what if I was to tell you that you might be just a two millimeter shift away from success, from looking at yourself and looking at the world in a completely different way? My name is Omar Pinto. I'm a life transformation coach and an addiction recovery specialist. And if you go to www. Dot omarpinto.com. This could very well be the life-changing opportunity you've been looking for. So go to the website to get more information about recovery coaching, group coaching, or one-on-one life coaching with me today. It's time to transform your life. Today's episode is brought to you by the RRC, the Recovery Revolution Community. The RRC is our private recovery membership group that features online meetings, online support, accountability, peer-to-peer recovery support, and coaching. The Recovery Revolution is more than just a podcast. It is a support network helping thousands of people all over the world. So for more information about the Recovery Revolution podcast or how you can join the RRC, then go to omarpinto.com and get plugged into the Recovery Revolution today. And if you haven't done so already, be sure to leave us a five-star rating and review on iTunes. It's the best way to show your support for the podcast. All right. It is Thursday night, Author Spotlight on February 7, 2019. And tonight we have Joseph Naus, Straight Pepper Diet. What's up, Joseph? Welcome. 
Hey, welcome. Thanks for having me. This is very cool. This is really cool. It is. It's community. It's community. <laughs> you know? Uh, last night, mm-hmm. my wife and I drove, um, took the train in from Highland Park, where you visited us. Yep. And we went to my friend, Carrie, who you might know if you read the book, who's the lawyer, who's my friend for a long time. And she lives down in town. And we were just commenting, like, community is, you know, you're on the train and you see all this humanity. And it's like the more, it seems like the more money you get or more privileged people become, the less they, they get involved with other people. It was so nice to be amongst the public and on the train, you know, it was just like, and you know, 12 step meetings provide that and churches and all this stuff. I, the older I get, the more I think community is important. Boy, that, that could not be more true. It's, I mean, what we've, what we've, what we're growing here in the SRC is just that. I mean, here is this opportunity to be in a community um, to be able to be open, to be vulnerable, to share, um, and to be from all over the world. You know, Mel, for example, is in Australia. Um, wow. And then the rest of the ladies are in all parts of the U.S. I'm in Costa Rica, right? right. So this gives us an opportunity to, we've created this community in here. You know, the, the share recovery community that as soon as I finished the logo work was going to be the recovery revolution community. Um, so a lot of things have been shifting and changing, but the idea is how do we get closer together? And I love that, that, that was kind of like we, how we opened up because it's true. We go on in our lives and as, as kind of, you're in high school, you're in college, you know, whatever, and you're surrounded with, um, friends, you're surrounded with connection, you're surrounded with community. You, you have your little cliques and you have your little clubs and all this stuff when you're younger. And then you go out into the world and you get a job and you get married and then your community gets smaller. It starts to shrink. I, and we, so st- true. and we start to disconnect from this wonderful opportunity to really expand, um, you know, our network and you know, our ability to contribute, um, and so, yeah, I mean, like you said, being in 12-step community and fellowship, we have a huge advantage that other people don't because we just kind of get plopped into a community um, and we get this opportunity to connect on a higher level. So that's a great way to start this. So it's it's good. It's good. So Joseph, you are this. Uh, okay, so your first book, Straight Pepper Diet. Now, apparently you have a second book coming out. Yeah. Um working on it. It's pretty close to done. It's in the post, post, post editing process. And, uh, it's called the Paul's graph revelation. And, um, yeah, it's basically picks up where straight pepper diet left off. Really excited about it. Despite my voice. Okay. All right. Now, are you going (laughs) to, are you going to be narrating that one as well? Yeah, actually. Um, you know, I'm married and, um, as you know, and we're testing the marriage by having my uh, wife do the audio for the, uh, for the uh, audible. (laughs) And uh, so far we're, we're, we're heading towards counseling, but uh, (laughs) getting, uh, no, it's, it's, uh, you know, the first time I did the audio book, I did the audio book for straight pepper diet. My great friend Vince, who's in the program, he's like a professional, um, uh, recorder and he works on all these TV shows and he he's the band leader for Sarah McLaughlin. He's got like all this great stuff. And so he had this 
beautiful studio, professional quality studio. And he kind of lent me his intern who I paid per hour to record it. And so I didn't realize all the technical stuff that went into doing an audiobook. It's hard enough just to read. I mean, it's hard to read an entire book without messing up. You know, it's, it gets very frustrating. You read and you make a mistake, you make the same mistake. And so I'm better at this time. But now, um, Teresa is, you know, not a professional recorder, but she's a musician. So she has some background. So she's doing it. So we created a little studio in the bodega outside of my, I call it the bodega, but it's just like a converted garage that has drywall on it. And we created a little studio in there. We're doing it on GarageBand and everything. And so, um, yeah, it's, it's cool. It's fun. It's fun. You know, it's like all this administrative stuff with the book. It's like, it can get really frustrating. So you have to stay in the art, you know, like if you can just sometimes the marketing and the, all the administrative stuff that goes into doing a book yourself, it can be very frustrating. So if I refocus and get into the art of it, you know, just stay in the art, stay in the spirituality, stay in what the messages of it, the process of writing, it goes a lot smoother. And so, so what you're telling me is that you've given control of the voice to your book over to your wife. Well, I'm doing the, no, no, I'm, I'm doing the record. I'm, I'm actually. Oh, it is narrating. your voice. Oh yeah, yeah. I'm narrating it. She's engineering it. She's doing the recording. She's actually the one setting the mic up. You know? Yeah. You have to follow along when the person's reading. You have to keep the, um, uh, you know, you're probably, you probably could do it. If you were in Costa Rica, I would ask you. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's daunting. Yeah, you got the levels got to be right. You too close to the mic, too yep. far from the mic. Oh, you know, all this technical stuff, and dude, and uh, and you know you have this thing that you know you got a multiplier effect. So if you make a mistake in chapter one and you don't catch it, my new book is thirty-two chapters, and you got a mistake that runs through thirty-two chapters. That's that's no good. <laughs> oh, it's a dude. it's a process. You know, uh, it's just like writing a book too. You got the same thing. You make a mistake and you're. Well, I'm proud of you for for doing this with your. I don't know if I could do it with my wife. It would really be a test to our marriage. You know, I mean that's a that's that's a lot of close quarters and a very very. I mean, audio recording. I don't. There, I don't even. I couldn't even possibly fathom what it's like to just record reading 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 a book in this right uh, at this right distance from the microphone and having it recording perfectly and then having to go back and redo it and then having my wife going no 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 you're too close you're too close or whatever and it's like oh my god yeah. no i mean i applaud you my friend i applaud you okay so it, it picks up where it left off all right so tell us a little bit about what that what that what's that going to look like what the listeners and the readers have to expect um, and what was the inspiration to launch the second book well, um, I, you know, the, the last book ends, the last book is a pretty tight time period. It basically starts, it does start, not basically, it starts on the day of my arrest and it ends on the day, which was almost exactly three years later of me coming out of incarceration. And so in order to come out of incarceration after three years from my arrest, as opposed to 20 years I had to make a deal with the devil, and that was to plead guilty to these very horrible crimes that gave me this very horrible record. So I go from being a, I don't want to say sought after, but pretty successful attorney to being unemployable and having uh, very little money 
and having this horrible record that makes me, uh, I mean, quite frankly, a societal outcast um, and kind of be in this position where when I present myself to somebody for employment or friendship or anything, I kind of have to explain like why you should be friends with somebody who has this on their record, this thing that makes most people, um, you know, not want to be around you. It's, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and so it's, you know, every story is the same, right? There's a, you start out and there's a problem and you got to overcome the problem. And so when I came on, when I got out, it was like, okay, here I am. I've got this record got a couple bucks in the bank. I have no job. Um, I'm sober. I'm clean. But how am I going to survive now? How am I going to make it? And so uh, my experience was that I did what I did the first time is that I dived into the program deeper because it's the last house on the block. And it was what always, it's what works. They told me that if I did what they told me to do, that uh, my life would get better. And I didn't really believe it, but I didn't believe it the first time either, but it worked. And um, so I dove in and it's kind of the story of how a, you know, two strike felon, registered sex offender, disbarred lawyer survives, you know, and well, first of all, do you want to survive having that on your record? <laughs> you know? right. And secondly, we can be frank here, right? <laughs> yes. And, uh, mm -hmm. and secondly, uh, uh, you know, moving forward from that. And, and, um, you know, it's also an addiction story too, because I had this thing where I was like, okay, I, w I was addicted to three things, you know, I had alcohol, sex, and nicotine, and I kicked the alcohol and sex and the nicotine ramped up. And I kind of found myself in a position of like, yeah, here I am in these rooms, walking the walk, talking the talk. I got sponsees, sponsors. I got I got a program. I go to a lot of meetings. I'm very active. I believe in what they're saying. I'm trying to make a connection with God. I pray. I meditate. I do the deal. Meanwhile, I'm killing myself with nicotine. And, you know, you hear both sides of the story when it comes to nicotine. You have the people that say, hey, look, get off the drugs, get off the alcohol. This isn't nicotine anonymous or whatever. And then you kind of have the other people that, especially after you have some time in the program, that are kind of like, hey, um, there is a very simple aspect to addiction and that is the physical part before we get to the spiritual part and the emotional part is like hey you're killing yourself with a substance and i was killing myself with a substance and so this book does have nicotine addiction wound into it and um yeah so uh that was part of it i wanted to talk about that um and I wanted to talk about the miracles that happened in my life because they really were amazing. Um, I felt, I, you know, I did what I recommend any um, person in, um, that's, that comes into the program who has a lot of problems, uh, get somebody who can help you. And I, I got in a relationship with a woman who was a spiritual guru, quite frankly. Um, and she like told me what to do. And most of the time I listened and she had me running through, um, jumping through hoops like a circus dog. You know, I was in therapy. I was in SA, SAA, SLAA, Al-Anon, uh, AA, NIC A, Narcotics A, you know, the, the whole NA and, you know, this A and that A and, and hypnotherapists and everything, agape and science of mind. I mean, I tried it all because I was desperate. Thank God for Back living in it. Los Angeles. Right, right. <laughs> Where all of it is there. It's like, I'm like, yeah, in AA, I'm like, I, yeah, I only want to go to meetings that I can walk to. And, you know, it's like, you, know, you, you can meetings everywhere. And, and 
in LA. So, um, yeah, I did it all. And, and, uh, I just, you know, I was in a situation where I had no choice. I, it was like live or die, like dive in, lean into the program, mm-hmm. lean into spirituality, lean into God. And if you wrote straight pepper diet, you know, I'm not like some, I'm not a Bible thumper or a fundamentalist or someone who had any belief. In fact, I had a disbelief in a, in a higher power, but there's something about crashing and burning over uh, and, the, and the wreckage of addiction that leads you to spirituality in a way that nothing else does. I mean, normies go there a lot of times because they want to. I think we go there because we have to. So, yeah. I do remember that was one of my favorite parts of the interview, and that was at the close, right? When I, when I asked you, um, what is it that you would recommend, you know, what is the one thing you would recommend to the newcomers? And you said, lean in, you know, mm-hmm. lean into the program, lean into your support group, right? lean in, really step into it, because um, if you don't, if you don't go all in, if you don't allow yourself to really take advantage of all these opportunities that are presented for you, you're just not going to reap the benefits. You've got to lean in. Um, and, and it's a great way of looking at it because a lot of it is, is, is about that feeling of being able to lean on something. I am completely lost. I am at my bottom of all bottoms, nobody walks into Alcoholics Anonymous or Narcotics Anonymous. You know, my life is fantastic. Everything is great. I just thought I'd touch things up, and this seemed like a great place to start. You know, right, right. and so you know, somebody recommended I some I work some of these twelve steps out. Right? I have Nagasaki right. my I have Nagasaki in my life. Yours in in your particular case, I I ruin my credibility. I. I Everything that I work for disappears overnight. I have to basically relinquish um, my my whole everything that I know about myself and what I'm capable of doing and what I'm able to the value that I bring into the world. And I gotta I gotta do something different. And you know, like you said, like you said, there's these thoughts that go on through your head that go, "What's the point? Like here I am, I'm out of jail, I survived that, and now." How am I going to how am I going to sur- survive? How am I going to support myself? Um, yeah. and that's that's pretty huge. So, tell us what that first year was like. Then, like, I'm just out of jail, and I haven't written a book. Or did you start? I can't remember whether you wrote the book or started the book while you were in jail, or did you start the book when you got out of jail? Oh no, long long time later. I got out of jail in uh, 2005, and I didn't start writing the book until, um, geez. Well, in, in, around, I guess, 2009, maybe. Okay. So it was a long time. Yeah, yeah. Four I mean, years. I had a lot of notes and stuff, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, so the first year was, you know, I had two years in the program. Um, I was very active in the program. And so when I came out, it was like, it was it was rough because, like I talk about in, in the Paul's Graph Revelation, the, my new book is like, when you get, when you go to rehab and you, and you have your trudging buddies and they tend to be new people, new guys, um, they don't last the, you know, like I say in the, uh, you know, in law school, you hear the, it didn't have to do this at my law school because I can go to a great law school, but if you went to Harvard or something, they would, or maybe not Harvard, but whatever, uh, a lot of law schools, they will, they will say, look to the left, look to the right. One of these people aren't going to make it right. 
And I feel like in sobriety or in, in recovery, you should say, look to the left, look to the right. Both of these people aren't going to make it. And that was the truth of the matter um, for me. So I had friends dying off. I had friends relapsing. Uh, my closest tradition buddies were gone, you know, and, um, and I, uh, you know, and so like you get, things get real practical real quick, you know, there's like, you know, it's like sobriety. Great. But what about food on the table? How am I going to make a living? I used to be a lawyer. I used to think that I was going to be able to buy a house and have a successful law firm and blah, blah, blah. Now I, I don't even know how I'm going to make it. Like I'm going to pay my rent, you know, I mean, homelessness was, creeping in quick. I mean, it was real. Like I had, uh, I was just like, I put my friends and family through too much. I'm not going to, if I can't support myself, I'm done. Like I'm, I'm done. And so I, uh, hooked up with a, uh, a girlfriend, a woman who was, I don't know, um, foolish enough to date me. And, uh, and she had just been through a lot herself. Um, and I don't know, it was Providence, you know, I hooked up with her and she was a superstar in the making, um, in her career and in her spirituality, she's since written books and she's a bit of a, she was a bit of a minor celebrity. And, um, she introduced me to all these different spiritual things and she had a glow about her. And, um, I, just kind of followed her. And I was like, you know, and I felt so grateful to be in a relationship with her, even though it was very difficult when you're first in sobriety and you're in a relationship, it's like, man, it's tough. You know, you feel like your skin is peeled off and your everything is just so sensitive, you know? And, um, and so I, um, I don't know. I just had miracles happen. That's what happened. I had miracles happen. It was like in my life, as I think most normal people, affect their life. They have their goals and they have a, they see the way things are going to happen. I go to college. If I go to college and get grades, I'll get a job. If I get a job, then I'll be able to buy a house, you know, X, Y, Z. But when you're in the position I was in, there was no X, Y, Z. There was, I don't know how this is going to look, you know, you know, we say that in sobriety and 12 steps a lot, right? You don't have to know how it's going to look. You just trust that it will trust. If you show up to the program, you put these 12 steps into, into effect in your life, that things are going to work out. And I'm a doubting Thomas. I didn't believe it, but I had no, what was I else going to do? It was like a bullet or try. Mm-hmm. That was all, that was my choice, a bullet or try. I, I mean, really, I was like, you know, I, my, my choices were the grand Canyon at 200 miles per hour face down or give sobriety and, and spirituality a try. That's the way, the way I looked at it. And, you, made, uh, you made the right choice. Thanks. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> hey, listen, man, I think, I think many of us have been there, right? Where, where my choice is, you know, put a bullet in my mouth or find a, figure out a way to get sober because how I'm living right now is I can't do it anymore. I, I can't. I can't. This is, I, I can't do this anymore. So whatever that is, yeah. whatever, whatever that I can't do this anymore is... I have to surrender to something. Yeah. And you know, there's a second level. I don't know if ladies on the podcast have experienced this, but there's like this level, like you, you're in hell, you get sober and then you get a bit of a pink cloud because you're sober. But then there's this other thing where, especially at a certain age group where there's like, how do I put this? There's like this time 
after you get sober for a while where reality comes rushing back in. And I see this a lot. I wasn't necessarily in this category, but some of the, my trudging buddies were where it's like, hey, I've been getting high for the last 10 years when everybody else was going to college and building up their careers. And we live in a pretty rough capitalistic society. And if you haven't been building up some equity in your career and stuff, it's pretty tough. And you're suddenly like, hey, I ain't got nothing. I'm so far behind. How am I going to make a living? And that's why I see a lot of my, I saw a lot of my trudging buddies relapse. And I wasn't there because of that same situation. I was there, which is the typical situation is like, maybe they didn't get their education because they were getting high or they weren't building up their career. I was there because I now had these crazy things on my resume that, you know, they were just like, why would you have to be an idiot to hire me? Why would you hire a guy with my resume? You know, when there's other, when there's tons of other people that you don't have to take a chance that they're going to, you know, do something horrible. Um, so I don't know where I was going with that, but I definitely saw that with, with the, with, with my trudging buddies and with other people that were in early sobriety is like life slaps them at about, I don't know, six months to two years, you get slapped with reality. I don't know. That makes sense to anybody else experience that. Mm-hmm. Well, the, the question was, you know, what was, what happened in that first year? You, I lost you, Omar. Oh shit. Hold on. Sorry. I, I put myself on mute because fucking roomy is barking up a storm and anyway, <laughs> sorry, sorry. Anyhow, okay. the question was, how was the first year? And then you segued into miracles. So some people have goals, right? And so you have this goals that, okay, I'm going to get an education, then I'm going to get a job, then I'm going to advance and this and that. And, you know, that was one aspect, but then miracles started to happen in your life. So you met this woman and I think she's in the book, right? Yeah. 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 I remember reading about her. I remember reading about her. She was, yeah, the, 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 the first relationship outside of, outside of recovery. Cause I mean, like, you know, I'm, I'm lost and desperate. Um, so what were some of those miracles that happened? Well, it's funny. I, I always have this tough thing when I go on inter- interviews about uh, giving away things of the book. And I realized after Straight Pepper Diet that it, there, was, there is no giving it away. I can give it all away and it's still just as interesting. I mean, you know. That is correct, sir. I could tell you what the firm is about and you it'll still, still be an interesting book. It's still going to be an interesting anyway. movie too. <laughs> yes, yes. So uh, anyway, so what's the uh, probably the most like on the nose miracle that happened was so i'm the clock is ticking down i've got some money from my old law firm and it's sitting in an account and every day it gets lower and lower and lower as i pay my bills and don't make any money and um uh macy we'll call her macy um introduced me to agape which is uh uh, it's a spiritual community. It's not a church. It's kind of like a it's science of mind, it, but it's, it's spirituality. And, um, and I went to this um, class and, and it was the foundations of this, um, of this uh, spiritual community. And one of the things they had you do in that class where they were like, Hey, this is practical spirituality. This isn't pie in the sky. We want you to really pick something that you want and be specific about it. So I was very specific about it. I was like, Hey, I need a friggin' job and I need one that makes this amount of money, you know? And I was hustling and hustling and try to get all these jobs. I did production. I'm like, you know, I'm 36 year old lawyer working as a PA running to get fucking people coffee and picking up trash and shit. 
working 16 hour days for 150 yeah. bucks. I wanted to be happy. And, uh, <laughs> and I was selling barbecue islands for an old client of mine. So I'd go, be going to these home shows with all these like burnt out salesmen trying to sell barbecue islands. And, uh, you know, and meanwhile, Macy was just like, Hey, it's all for your good. This is where God has you. It's your ministry. And I'm just like, damn, you know how, but I did it. And then my friend, uh, Carrie, who's in the first book, um, called me one day and was like, Hey, this company wants to, um, my mom works for this company has worked for this company for 20 years. It's a steel company. They've been around for a hundred years or a fortune 500 steel company and they need a contract manager. And I'm like, are you fucking crazy? I'm a two strike felon registered sex offender disbarred lawyer. Fortune 500 companies don't hire guys like me to run their contract management. So I go in there and I interview just because people told me just say yes until there's, you know, that's the rule, right? Say yes, say yes, say yes, until you have so many yeses, you have to choose the yeses. Don't say no. So I said, yes, I went to the interview. I figured it'd just be practice. And just by providence, I ended up in a position of getting hired. And it was a little sneaky. Like when they asked me what had happened, because they did, they asked me what happened. I put it on my resume that I was a, that I'd been convicted of a felony assault during a blackout and that I was sober. Okay. I didn't mention the whole sex part. Right. Let's just mellow out on that. <laughs> and so they, they liked me a lot. Of course they did. Right. I was a seven year lawyer and they were going to hire me for a contract manager. So they get a lawyer for the price of a contract manager. And so they kind of like didn't hear what they didn't want to hear. So when they offered me, I said, they offered me the position. I said, cool, send me an offer letter because now I have to quit all my positions for the production stuff I was doing that, you know, the $150 a day PA stuff. But in reality, what I wanted was to get a firm offer from them so I could lock them in. So they said, we can't do that until they have a criminal background check. And I said, well, you know, maybe, maybe just do it, you know, because the criminal <laughs> background check wasn't going to come back that as, you know, it wasn't going to be as nice as maybe one would want it to be. And anyway, I didn't tell them that. I told them, look, I, I have to, you know, I got all these jobs lined up, which was semi-true. And uh, they locked it in. They made the offer. And I said, look, you know, I already disclosed to you that I'm a felon, that I had committed an assault. And they said, okay, well, we'll do it. So they, lock, so they locked me in. And then they got the criminal background check. And they called up like all the big wigs from corporate and stuff called up and they're like, Whoa, Whoa, Whoa. Like, no, no, no. And I'm like, Hey, you, you, you know, you signed on the dotted line. I knew they could, <laughs> I knew they could sit, tell me to, to blow off and, and fight me if they wanted to. And I wasn't going to assume or anything, but it gave me a chance to go in there and pitch to them. So I kind of used my trial lawyer skills and I put together these exhibits and I made all these binders and I, made them agree to sit with me. And I sat with the head of HR, the head of the company, not the head of the whole company, but the head of that division and another boss. And I did this pitch, you know, I, I rehearsed it and I went through this whole thing and I explained to them the truth of, you know, it was the truth of what actually happened that night. You know, and sometimes the thing about my conviction was that the name of the conviction is worse than the facts, you know, the facts are, are horrible, but they don't support the crime. So, Ultimately, they hired me. And, uh, you know, so, I, I mean, you know, one thing I believe in my spirituality is just because you understand the way a miracle happened doesn't mean it's not a miracle. So I can explain to you exactly how that happened so you can understand the facts that led up to it, but it's still a miracle. 
And so, you know, a two-strike felon registered sex offender who was only sober for two years and disbarred lawyer got a job with a Fortune 500 company as a contract manager, and they knew about my convictions. So that's that's a miracle. That is a miracle. That is a miracle. And I mean, I was down to my last, I mean, I wasn't making enough money to pay my rent, literally. And I was down to my last less than $1,000. I mean, I was literally, I had to tell my landlord that I had got this job and showed her the, the employment contract so that she would be okay with me not paying my rent on time. For the first time in my life, I hadn't paid my rent on time. So I thought that was a miracle. There's no question about it. Okay. So um, who's got questions for Joseph? I do. Bring it on, Peggy. I can always count on Peggy. I was uh, speaking of miracles. You survived your childhood, which was unbelievable in the book. You know, I just wanted to reach in that book and hug you. It was so overwhelmingly uh, intense, you know? So I just want to give you kudos for that. That in itself is a miracle. And then to go on to college and get all that done. I mean, my husband had to face the felony thing too. And uh, he was lucky enough to have a parole officer that liked him, saw the good in him. And after he had been trudging through looking for work too, he, uh, this guy just said, I'll get you a job. I have this person I know. And they got him a job. So that's awesome. He was the, you know, the white man in prison too. And so when we read your book and heard your podcast, we were like, he was like, yeah, I know what that feels like. You know, he was in for his multiple DUIs, but uh, we both got sober 10 years ago. So um, we're moving forward. We're miracles too, but uh, yeah, you are a miracle. Thank you. Yeah. But Mm -hmm. I, um, this, a lot of people responded to the, childhood chapter which is the only chapter in the book that i wrote in third person and mm. uh in straight paper diet i made that choice and i think a lot of people liked it and so in this book there's a few childhood chapters one goes a little forward in time um and they're also in third person not that it has to do with it that's just technical writing stuff but uh yeah the childhood things are a trip right i mean like mm. i don't know what your childhoods were like but when you're a child you're a fish in water to some extent, I guess at certain age, you see what your friends are friends. Lives are like, and you start to get this contrast of like, Whoa, there's food in the fridge. And you know, your mom, you know, your mom doesn't bring home strange men and, and, you know, all these things. And, and, um, so yeah, it's, I don't know. I, I, it's rough. I, I, um, my mom passed since the last book. Mm-hmm. She died of uh, lung cancer from smoking, and um, and uh, I was able to. She read the book and she stopped talking to me, and um, and I went to therapy for that to try to deal with that. I'm not a big therapy guy. It probably sounds like I am, but I, I did. I went to therapy because I was just like I I couldn't sleep. I, I my mom was dying of cancer. And, you know, she died, she ended up dying at 62. She had small cell um, lung cancer. So it's very aggressive cancer. And, um, and she wouldn't talk to me. And I was so angry, you know, because it was kind of crazy. Like the, the level of denial that she had about what was written in the book was really strange. She actually took umbrage with little tiny details, not the big picture. It wasn't like, oh, I wasn't a heroin addict. It was like, oh, you didn't pick me up on a Thursday. You picked me up on a Friday, you liar. 
you know, it was really weird stuff. And so I knew it was had to do with something bigger than what I understood or something more psychological trauma. I don't know. And so I did, I, I, you know, it was a guy in the program who was a therapist and I started seeing him and I, and he told me, he told me, I said, I wanted to see a therapist who would implement the 12 steps in this. I had to go deeper than what a sponsor would take me to, you know, I, I couldn't expect a sponsor to deal with this thing. So I, I went deeper, you know, they say in the program, right? Seek outside help. Mm-hmm. So I did. And, um, um, he walked me through how to handle this. And, and at some point I, I just kept sending her letters and kept calling her and she wouldn't answer the phone and whatever. And then eventually she did. And we reconciled before she died. And, you know, she was, uh, you know, I, you know, you just, it's just sad, you know, I mean, that she uh, passed away of a, you know, so after that, but I'm very grateful that I got to um, be there at the end with her. And when my wife um, um, and I decided we we're getting married, we knew that she was going to die before then. So my wife, uh, we visited her in the, um, in the, in the nursing home that she had been moved into. And my wife did like an impromptu marriage, um, just the three of us, you know? And so, it, you know, it had a happy, but sad ending with my mom. Um, so yeah, that's, that's that, that's that. Ooh. Who's got a question now after that? <laughs> got me. Wow. That's, that's, it's, it's tough, man. It's tough on so many different levels. Cause um, we go through so much and, you know, it's, and I wanted to, I was, I'm, I'm going to ask you a different question here in a minute about your childhood, but you know, as we talk, as we think about this relationship with our parents, the people that we, you know, look up to the most for so many years of our lives, we have these high, high expectations of our parents because that's just what we, that's, that's our, our greatest the greatest people we know for the longest time is our parents. And so we build up these unrealistic expectations of who they are. And in and, and many cases, like, like your mom, like my parents, like my mother, like my, my dad, hurt people hurt people. And mm. so they carry this. We, we do not know the cross that they bear, how much pain they're in, like, she, like you were talking about. As soon as you said that she starts to nitpick at things that are like, this is insignificant. I mean, like... Of all the things you could be looking at, you chose to look at this because anything else is so deep, so painful. It's impossible. I got to gloss over that. That I, yeah. I'm, 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 I'm not even acknowledging this, but I can deal with this mistake that you made between Thursday and Friday. Right, right. Because right, I, yeah. I, I, I'm not triggered by that. Right. Okay? I'm triggered by this other thing, and this is allow me to to say. This pissed me off. I didn't agree with this. I don't like this or whatever the case may be. And this is my way of venting it out. I mean, we don't we have no idea how deeply scarred and hurt the 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 wounding is for our parents, but we carry that shit, man. Um and I remember the same thing with my I didn't speak with to my dad for 2 years after my parents divorced. I blame my dad for my parents divorce. I blamed him for the the marriage, you know, and, and then my mom moved to Costa Rica and I got to spend time with her full time. And then I got it. Like I was like, 
I was like, funny. wow, I was blaming, I was blaming dad for this. That's funny. Like, <laughs> wow. <laughs> so then, you know, my, my sponsor walks me through making amends to my dad. And so I finally, you know, three years into my sobriety, I make amends with my dad and instantly everything drops off from that amends. And we're able mm-hmm. to come together and we're able to spend, he moved, he came to Costa Rica, spent two months with me and we were able to spend some of the most amazing quality time. He lived with me. We were together. We were inseparable. I took him everywhere with me. He was, he was like, I can't take my mom anywhere. Right. But I can, t- I could take my dad everywhere. I was like, all these paradigm shifts started to happen. I started to look at the world, myself, the relationship, everything's so different and then a year later, he gets diagnosed with stage four cirrhosis. Oh, and I remember, cirrhosis. I remember when you were going through what you went through with your mom, because I was, it was all just this parallel going. I was like, I get it, man. I know where you are at. Just at that moment where you're able to make this amazing shift in your relationship, they get taken away. Yeah. And it's like, yeah. fuck, just one more thing. Like, where's the, where's the justice? Where's the justice? And an entire lifetime of like, where's, where, where's the justice? And, and you, listen, you can sit with that for as long as you need to, right? We, we, we obviously, we, need, we move on. We move on with our lives, right? But in that moment, I have to give that the space that it deserves because I need to grieve. I need to grieve for this loss. It's healthy and it's needed, yeah. Yep. Who's next? Who's got a question? Who wants to chime in? All right. So here's my next question. How much, how much, because that is so important. Your childhood, I mean, like that's next level. Talk about childhood trauma, 10 x Okay. However, however, this martial, the martial arts segue to defend yourself, protect yourself, to empower yourself, right? That shift that you made with the martial arts. When, we th- when you think about your resiliency, your strength, your conviction, your ability to dive into the program, lean in, the, your ability to survive this 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 event or these series of events how much can you attribute the viking that you became as a child to being able to survive everything else that came after um well i guess that has two uh two components one is that you know i didn't get into martial arts until i was in high school um so the when i was a kid i was just like surviving because I just used to dealing with stuff like, you know, like even now, like the other day I did a four day fast, no, you know, no water, no nothing. Um, I mean, no water. That's it. I was about to say, dude, hello. (laughs) (laughs) I was about to say, those of you who are listening, do not do this. Yeah. I did a, I, uh, I did a four day fast with okay. just water. Yeah, water fast. Yeah. I yeah, I done a 5 day. Yeah, And great. it's and it's it was easy because I was when I was a kid I could go long periods without eating because mm-hmm. you know, 
I was a kid, but I also could give food. You know, it's America. You can give food. No one's going to let you starve to death. Um, I mean, that's at least was my experience. I don't know. Um, but then when I, the martial arts thing was, uh, I don't know, um, David Morrow, who was my kickboxing instructor. He's dead. He was a, he was one of us and, uh, never got into the program, but, um, he was, uh, he was a Marine and he was crazy and he was terrible. It's, it's kind of, it kind of talks to the thing of where you have all these people in your lives and they're there. They can, it, you know, we're such complex people. Like David gave me this great gift. He had a lot of flaws and stuff. Um, anyway, but he, you know, he, I, he taught me how he, he taught me that pain doesn't hurt. You know, that's like, that was pretty much it. You know, this was before, um, um, the, what do you call it? The, the new, new style of fighting that everybody what, does. MMA the, mixed martial yeah, arts. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. This is before MMA, you know, now there's, you know, there's, like I say, nowadays you would never want to be in a fight. You never know who's in the MMA, you know, <laughs> like I don't want to mess with any MMAers, but yeah, the, the point of it was just like, being able to go through pain, like, like your body, my experience and what he taught me was that your physical body, your mind quits way before your physical body. So you have to figure out a way for your mind to not quit. Um, your body can go far. Your, your mind will tell you, okay, let's shut it down now way before you have to. So, um, I learned that through Muay Thai and kickboxing where I would do things that I never thought I could do as far as endurance and pain. And, um, it was a great experience. It helped me through everything else because I, you know, you just like, you can do anything, you can do anything, you know, it's just, I was listening to, um, a podcast the other day it was the, what's that guy's name? Um, he, he's like a best-selling author right now. He, he wrote a book. Uh, he was a Navy SEAL. Um, I can't think of his name, but anyways, he wrote this book and he talked about the same type of thing. You know, it's just like this, um, this ability. I think anybody who does like long distance endurance sports and stuff, or women who do like ballet and stuff. Like I talked, my, my wife is, uh, went to uh, Cal arts and has a, did ballet and stuff and, and the like on point dancing and stuff, like the amount of pain that these dancers go through, you know, or, you know, somebody who did football or whatever, you know, all these things. I, I just think that, lesson from martial arts taught me that you know because when i was a kid i guess the big thing was when i was a kid i had a certain amount of toughness but it was just kind of like being able to accept the unacceptable because i had no choice um but my 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 coping mechanism was to go inside and just kind of like avoid conflict but when i was through the martial arts and the training for martial arts i learned to um to be able to uh, endure pain. So that, and so, which goes to my question, which was how much of that mindset was present throughout, even in the course of the last, since you got out of prison or even, even through prison, like at some point, I, I remember you got into prison and, and recognized that everyone in here thinks they're a badass until they're actually in front of somebody who has some training. Yeah, it's true. It's like it's kind of funny because you you realize, especially in jail, and prison's a little bit different. But in jail and Twin Towers, um, 
you know, it's like any other sport, right? Like if you, if you took somebody who was really uh, athletic and you handed them a tennis racket versus someone who actually played tennis, the tennis player would kill them nine times out of 10. And it's the same with fighting. If you're not trained in fighting, you could be a real tough person who thinks they're a badass. But if you're not trained, you're just like, you know, you're not going to be able to compete. So um, it was, I mean, I did everything I possibly could to avoid a fight because, you know, somebody has a shank on them. You're not going to. Right. You're not getting out of that. Not getting out of that. So, you know, but yeah, the, the, just like the, I, you know, it's just like in, I, I guess it's like the, uh, the, the sobriety thing of one minute, one moment, one day, one month, one, anything at a time. Like if you can just break everything up, these very difficult things, if you can just break them up and be like, if I can survive, all, I don't have to survive all day at Chino prison. I just have to survive the next 10 minutes. And then I have to survive the next 10, and the next 10. If you can somehow like partition your mind off, no matter what it is. I mean, even with work sometimes, like the other day I had a project that was just, I hated doing it. I don't want to do it at all. And I just did that little mind trick where you're like, okay, from 5 a.m. to 6 a.m., that's all I have to worry about now. Then 6 a.m. to 7 a.m., we'll worry about that later. And then, you know, I worked on a project for 16 hours of just sitting in front of a computer, and I hated it. But I got through it through <laughs> using that that same kind of uh, all these tools that we learn in the program. You know, these tools. Like when you, I guess that's the thing. When, I, when you're raised like me, you don't get tools. Like you're your parents don't give you the tools. You don't learn all these things. So, you know, they say, uh, well, what, what doesn't kill you only makes you stronger. Well, there's some truth to that, but there's also like, you didn't pick up any of the tools that you were supposed to pick up. So sometimes what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Sometimes what doesn't kill you puts you in a wheelchair, you know? So, yeah. But at the same time though, here's the thing. All right, I'm going to get, let's say, for example, I do. Let's say, I get, example, I get all the tools that I need. Or maybe I get all the love and affection. And I, I think about my daughter when I, when, I, when I talk about that, too. Because here's someone who has had zero adversity in her life. Zero. When she was born, I got sober, right? By the time she's old enough to be cognitive of any sort of language or bad energy or fighting, She's already five years old, and my ex-wife and I have a completely different relationship. She's in a private school, right? She gets driven to school every single day. She's never had, you know, like, I mean, here is this. We are open and vulnerable and communicative and loving and caring and nurturing. Got no fucking life skills whatsoever. She's a house cat with no claws. (laughs) Yet. Right. And it's my biggest fear is that I loved her and nurtured her and, and we, we both did too much. Right. Now, she's a tough kid in the sense that she's she's had some things that, you know, happen in her life. But at the same time, this is what we gave her. You weren't given anything. You had to go in search of. And here's, yeah. you know, like I didn't get the tools, but I went the fuck out and got them. And I turned into someone. And this is kind of like that turning point where we talk about who did I become? Because if I didn't put a bullet in my mouth, I figured out how to, how to get around that. Because when I lose everything, when I'm at rock bottom, when I'm, at that, when I, I'm delivered that gift of desperation, some of us do not come out alive. 
The pain is too unbearable. And what you just described here, most people will never get an opportunity to understand what that is like, to recognize that the mind will quit before the body, that you can endure a level of pain that you had no idea you could until, unless you were in martial arts, a Navy SEAL, in the military, right? Had to endure something in your life that forced you to push your body to a level where you go, oh my God, I actually, I actually survived this. I actually could do this. And this is why, I mean, that was the question. I was trying to see that if, if there was that conscious recognition that, oh my God, like, there's no way I would have survived getting out of prison if I hadn't figured out how to survive being a teenager. Mm. Yeah, I guess you're right. You know, there's a, there's definitely something to that. I had, you know, I, I had a, a friend in the program who uh, was in the same situation that I was in, but he was one of these kids who grew up super privileged. Yeah, his brother is a, a rock, a, a huge rock star, and they had tons and tons of money. And he was in the exact situation that I was. He had committed so many crimes. Uh, they, they were all small things, but there were so many of them that the judge finally was going to consolidate all of them. And the judge told him, bear with me, I have a point here. <laughs> the, judge, <laughs> the, judge, <laughs> the judge told me, uh, told him that get your fares in order you're going you're going to do some time and he you know he he wasn't willing to do that because and so he checked out you know I, I dropped him off after i picked him up and took him to a meeting i dropped him off and the next day he was dead uh, mm-hmm. overdosed uh, i don't know if it was a suicide or overdose i tend to think it was well i don't know i don't going to speculate but but the point is is yeah to your point um yeah when you survive things you know you can survive i mean i'm at you know yeah you know, I'll give you an, I'll give you a, a not nowhere near um, dramatic example, but it's something that happened to me this week. Okay, I want I want to drink more water, so I took this water bottle and I miss I misread the volume. Okay, so I've never been somebody that has been very good with the whole school thing. Right. So like liters to gallons and ounces and all that kind of shit. Plus, I live in Costa Rica. So we have the metric system. So, you know, whatever. So anyway, I'm like, I want to drink more water. And somebody's like, oh, I'm drinking a gallon a day. I'm like, how the fuck do you drink a gallon a day? I mean, Jesus, that's a, like, that's a lot of water. Right. And so I take this bottle and there's this little, it says right here, 470. So I go, okay, so this has got 470 milliliters. Okay, great. So how many milliliters are in a gallon? And I'm like, holy cow. Okay, so there's a 1,000 milliliters. So I'm going to need to drink um, eight of these, right? And I was like, oh, my God. Like, to get four liters into me, I said, well, I can't, I can't do that. Okay, I'll do three liters. I'll try and do three liters, which is six of these a day. Turns out this thing's a liter. <laughs> so, the, so two days in a row... I managed to do six of these bottles thinking that I was doing less than a gallon and going, wow, I made three liters. Like, oh, my God. And then my wife's like, that's not half a liter, honey. That's a liter. And I, was, and I went, wait a minute. I, I drank an, a gallon and a half. 
And it's immediately, it was like, you know, the four minute mile. Who was, who ran the four minute mile? Charles Bannister. Charles Bannister or Steve Bannister. Yeah. I can't remember. Not Steve Bannon. No, 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 not Steve Bannon. <laughs> but some, I think it was something, something Bannister. No, you're right. Or Richard Bannister, something, something like that. He ran the, he ran the first four minute mile. And then after that, like hundred people ran it within like five years. Right. The mind is going to quit before the body does. The mind's going, dude, you can't drink eight of these things. Like, have you lost your mind? Right. I don't even know how people, other people are doing it. Let's, let's just commit to, we'll, we'll try and do, you know, three liters. And I end up doing, and then it was like, oh my God, the mind is nowhere near as strong as the body is. The body can survive so much more. And immediately, all of a sudden, I'm like, I drink a gallon of water a day. Immediately, my, I drink a gallon of water a day. I changed right. my mindset based on that experience. And you've had a gazillion of them. Yeah. And those are yeah. those big aha moments. And guess what? There's so many of them, you've started to take them for granted. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As I work on my <laughs> third third leader of the day. <laughs> All right, so guys, does anyone? This is amazing. Thank you so much for for joining us. This is like we've really gone deep here. Any of you other ladies have a question for for Joseph or comments or want to jump in or share? Please dive in. How about that judge you had? That was a miracle. Oh, yeah. Yeah. God, that was unbelievable. Uh, yeah. Was we had one amazing. of those moments, too, with a good judge that got us, that understood us. So, well, it was amazing. I mean, all those people came to my sentencing hearing, and that was a miracle yeah. of the program. But what was really a miracle was, or what was really mind boggling was that he had said on the record in front of all those people that he was an alcoholic. Yeah. And, um, very interesting. Um, yeah, it was crazy. You know, I mean, he's been an ally of mine. Uh, you know, I hope to have gotten off the registry. Unfortunately, he doesn't have the power to get me off. But, um, you know, um, yeah, that was a miracle. Mm-hmm. You know, I wanted to say something to what you were talking about, Omar, um, real quick, is one of the miracles of healing that I had when I was and that's that's discussed in this next book is that the woman that I was with who who I who I was talking about she had a son who was about my age at the time when my worst my worst time of my life when I lived in the alley um, when my mom was assaulted by a stranger and 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 she was had just got off heroin and all this stuff a horrible horrible time of my life and he was the same age and to and I didn't have like I have brothers and sisters or half brothers and sisters, but I didn't grow up with any of them. So I I didn't know what it was like. And so to experience his mom and his dad, who was they were both his dad was in the picture. They were divorced, but they're he's totally a good dad in the picture to experience the way they treated him. It was such a healing thing for me. It was like I could it was like I. I almost was able to transfer that to myself and it was just 
it was like one of those tear jerking moments, like all the time, like on the one hand, it made me think to my parents, like I used to ask myself, like, how could you like, I, I would look at him, this beautiful kid who is just like what you're describing of your daughter, like this kid, private school, uh, artistic parents. I mean, this guy, this kid has it all. And of course they don't even know they have it all. So sometimes you think, Oh, you're fucking ungrateful. What's the matter with you? But they don't, you're fish in water. They don't know. Mm-hmm. But to look at him and to see the love that, that comes naturally, you know, that, that non-addict parents and other problem parents don't have that they gave to him and to, to experience that, you know, it was just such a healing thing, you know, like at first it, it made me angry at my own parents because I used to be in a lot of denial about it. I would just say, oh, my mom was like this because my dad was an asshole. But the reality is that that's not true. You know, she had her own problems and whatever. It, it is what it is. But to experience him was just, it was a, you know, I got to spend some time with him and not be a parent to him, but to just be in his life a little bit. And the just, it like healed my heart to see, you know, um, he also had the same same name as me i won't tell you which name whether it was first or middle just but he had the same name so it kind of had this like thing to it that was just and he and i mean we weren't even that close but it was just just to experience that was like the most healing thing just the love that they expressed to him and how it should be and and um i i that was really something for me in early sobriety dude that is powerful powerful and the ability to actually through that get a a new perspective on humanity because when i'm in my situation many cases i can't see far too far outside of that Mm, yeah and i start to judge the world based on my fish tank my fish bowl and then here i am in a different one and go wow it can be different. Right? There is love. There is like there there are loving parents. And I kind of go back and forth between the resentment I have for my own life and my own parents to this opportunity to be a part of a family um, and to be able to just have enough to have to experience gratitude, to experience right. gratitude, even if I can't put my finger on it or my name on it. Or, or understand what's happening. All I know is I just feel good in this moment. And what I'm experiencing right now is some gratitude and some love. Right. Well, you know, we, have, we would have these discussions. His mom and I would be like, and she'd be like, well, I don't, he's not going to go to a private uh, high school, right? Uh, he's not going to go to public high school. And I'd be like, you, what? You got to put him in a public high school. He's not going to be tough enough to make it in this world if he doesn't, you know? And, and, I, and, then, and then her thing was basically like, really? You want him to experience all the horrible shit that you experienced? You know, I mean, he doesn't, I'd be like, well, how's he ever going to make it? It's like, oh, his entire life, he may go his entire life and never have to experience that shit. He's going to go from private school to private school, to private college, to cush job, because he doesn't know any of this stuff. I'm not saying bad things might not happen. I'm sure they will. They happen to all of us. But he doesn't need to be put in that situation, you know. But I had this this belief system, and that's what sobriety is all about, right? Breaking down our belief systems and and false belief systems that keep us in the in pain. 
And I had this belief system that like you needed to go through pain, like you needed to be able to take this on. You needed to learn to fight and all this stuff. Like this kid, like he he was into art and music. He didn't want to fight. He didn't want to play football. He didn't want to be a tough guy. Fuck being a tough guy. Who wants to be a tough guy? I'm, you know, I'm 48 now. My tough guy days are over. Um, <laughs> if anybody fucks with me, I got. I'm a. I, I hope I have mace on me. You know. Um, I'm, not allowed, I'm not allowed to carry a gun, but, but I can carry a mace. I, I think may I, I may not be able to carry a mace actually, but uh, but you know what I'm saying? Like the toughness. There's no, you know, especially the tough guy toughness. I you know I don't I don't need to be Steven Seagal or something, and nor does he, you know. So I, but I, I imagine you probably have that dis- that same thought with your life, like the, you know, toughen them up versus. You know how easy do you want them to have it? You know versus that, and, and maybe it's, I don't it, know what the answer is, but there, that's the thing. There is no right answer. Right, right. Life is an experience, and we are all different for a reason. We born in the part of the world that we're born with the parents that we have because this is our experience, and based on this experience, this is how we're going to get through life. And you need, and whatever, whatever that journey was for you and those skills that, you know, I didn't get, you know, I didn't get the skills or I didn't get the lessons or I didn't get whatever, the tools, that was the word. I didn't get the tools, right? I got different tools. And it's funny, you recognize that back then when you're having this discussion with his mom. Well, how do you, what do you mean private school, right? How's he going to learn to be tough? How's he going to become right. resilient and strong? Yeah. What's it, he going to do when the gang members attack him? It's like gang members, <laughs> there's the no gang, gang members, members in a private him. school. It's like, he's going to go to Harvard. There's no gang members. Like, you know. but, yeah. Oh. Yeah. I, 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 you know, right now I'm recording this at my half sister's house and she has a baby. And so my wife and I would come out here to, to visit um, every other week. And it has been such a healing process and so wonderful for me. Like I have to check myself, like not tearing up all the time, but like just to be like, be in a child's presence and to like hold this baby and to be part of his life and stuff. Because it's like, you know, parents understand that, but I'm not a parent and I've, it's been just so, heartwarming you know just like experience this and be trusted you know and and to have that in your life you know there's such a healing thing in children and i'm even i'm super lucky because i'm the uncle so i don't have to change diapers or anything i just come here bring the toy and they smile and stuff and things get rough i'm out (laughs) but it's been wonderful so what about you and having children Oh, my, my wife's older than me and I'm 48 and uh, we're oh, I got done. You. We're out. I, I can barely you. afford. Uh, yeah. <laughs> my, Say I no more. <laughs> I spend all my money on golf. Not kidding. <laughs> it's a- my retirement plans, the senior PGA tour. So I got work to do. <laughs> big dreams, big dreams. All right. Yeah. All right. Come on. Feedback, feedback, questions, ladies jump in. Well, I read the book a while ago. And then I listened to it this last week um, on audible. And I, I love it when people do their own books, when they narrate their own books, it just puts such a personal touch on it. And um, 
I mean, it also allowed me to cry appropriately when I needed to, because when you're reading a book and you have to stop and cry or try to cry through it, reading it, because I cried. I mean, I, because I could feel it. I could feel, you know, when you were, when you were that child and that, oh man, it was very powerful. And, oh, thank uh, you. Thank yeah, you, I really enjoyed it. And, um, you know, to come out of that is huge, which, you know, and, you know, there's trauma in a lot of our lives and coming out of that and it's empowering and it's, it's just such a huge testament to this program and what it can do for us and what we can do for it and what we can do for others. And, um, that's just, that's my piece. Oh, thank you. That means so much to me. I really appreciate that. I apologize. I, I wore a, I'm trying to be a, a better narrator this time. So I wasn't very good that time, but I mean, so it was, that, I did but. laugh a little when you were like saying essay and cause I'm like, that's how I would say it. We don't know how to <laughs> um, necessarily um, use slang. <laughs> oh, oh yeah. yeah. Oh, essay. Oh yeah. Yeah. That's essay, funny. Yeah. I, thought, I thought you meant essay as in sex addicts. No. Like, essay as in E-S-S-E. Oh, yeah. uh, you know, while we're on the subject of service and everything, I, one thing I wanted to, is this recorded, Omar? Like, or is this just live? Like, if you're not on this, oh, no, 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 it's see. not live at all. It's recorded. Oh, it is recorded. Okay, so for anybody on here, I don't know if there, we have any writers on here or not. But um, you know, we talked about the beginning of this about community and the magic, like you just mentioned, Liz, of of the program and the the, the underlying magic, like the the thing that Bill discovered, right? Bill and Bob discovered was one addict talking to another that's the magic right and the real and you know half the book is dedicated to to memoir right half the book is stories they're short memoirs and so i'm always trying to be um i want to be of service in different ways and so you know if there's anybody who's listening to this who like let me preface this i think that you know i heard somebody say like i think it was actually on on your last uh, author spotlight that just because you have a story doesn't mean it's a good story. Like you can't write it, but I, I, I disagree with that. I think everybody has a story and if it's written well, it's interesting. And so um, if anybody is listening to this and they're interested in writing their memoir, whether it just be for their children or whether they want to get it published or whatever, and they want help, you know, to a certain extent, um, they're free to email me. Um, my email is addictivecontent at gmail.com. It's addictivecontent at gmail.com. Cause I, I just really think there's like, you know, people are like, there's too many drug and alcohol memoirs. I'm like, there's not enough of them. Like I, you know, why not? You know, they're great. And if they're written right, any story is interesting. It doesn't have to be as dramatic as my story. As far as the facts, I've seen people really fuck up a very dramatic story. And I've seen people take stories that are kind of mundane and make them amazing. So, you know, I, we're always trying to be of service in this program. It's not just service from one alcoholic to another. It's like all our different gifts. And so, you know, I've written two memoirs now, so I have a little bit of a feel for what it takes and maybe can help some people. So if you want help, let me know. I'm not charging or trying to do some money thing or anything like that. Just, just, you know, just trying to help. All right, so great, great segue to if they want to reach out to you, but you also have a website too, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so oh yeah, josephwnows.com. Okay, so this easy. is this is going to be a podcast episode, so there's going to be a few thousand people that that hear this eventually. 
Um, so I'll release it just like I released Amy's and Sarah, uh, Sarah um, Heppelis is also going to be released shortly too. So I do release the, the author's spotlights, right, as a podcast. Oh, cool. So when the people are listening, go to josephwnaus.com. I'll have that listed in the show notes. Or you can email Joseph at, again, addictivecontent at gmail.com. Excellent. And just say, hey, I heard you on the Recovery Revolution, which is the new name. <laughs> so, nice. <laughs> so I heard you on the Recovery <laughs> Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we are transforming the way you look, see, and feel about recovery. <laughs> yeah. Fuck yeah. Yeah. Next level, baby. That's where we're going. So that's how to get a hold of, J- uh, of Joseph. Um, who else has any questions for Joseph? I see everyone unmuted themselves, so they're kind of prepared. I think you unmuted us. No, I did. Said you did it. Oh, I did. It said the host <laughs> unmuted you. <laughs> ah, okay. Um, no, but I, I must I have do been. I have asked. a couple questions. Shoot. Um, now that you're talking about writing your story and stuff, um, did you write your story just because you wanted to be a service, or did what? Or did you do it as a healing process? Did you? You know, what made you want to write your story, I guess? The first the first book or the second one? The first book. Okay. The first book, I wrote my story uh, firstly because um, I wanted to take back my story. Like the state of California owned my story at that point, and they've been publishing it to the entire world, uh, which basically was this guy is a, is a, a menace to society. And I wanted to um, – I wanted to – correct the record and tell the true story of what happened and why I, you know, pled guilty to a, to a very horrible crime that I did not commit. Uh, I mean, I committed a very, I committed a crime. There's no question about that. Um, and I did a very horrible thing, but, but um, I, I wanted to take back my own story. I wanted to own my, I wanted to own my story. That was one of the reasons. The other reason was that I thought that um, people could relate uh, that I thought it was, there was a, you know, I thought, I thought that if you just like the big stories in the back of the big book, just a lot more entertaining. And, uh, if those help people get sober, then mine could too. And it turned out it, it worked. There's a lot of people, a lot, I, I actually have sponsees from people who read the book and have called me and asked me to sponsor them. Uh, I'm t- mm-hmm. taking people all the way through the 12 steps at my house from people who have read the book and come to my house and um and the other way is i wanted to be filthy filthy rich um yeah <laughs> yes. one and two have, have college no <laughs> so uh you know and i yeah I, uh, I like to write i it's the artistry of just writing too is very fun sometimes sometimes it's not but sometimes it's just like being able to just the the art of writing you know i like i like that too how long did it take you to write the book? Oh God, just, you know, I'm not that skilled. So it's like, it took me a long, long, long time because I didn't have the skill set. So it wasn't, I feel like I reached the same, a similar place as to some of the skill set. It just took me, you know, 10 hours to write a page as opposed to one hour. So, you know, it, yeah, I, I don't know if I could actually, 
I wish I had. I, I used to have to force myself to write a little bit because sometimes you feel like writing and sometimes you don't. So what I did was I created a, um, a spreadsheet. I physically um, uh, taped it up to a, a cabinet and I would dedicate to write four hours a day. And I would say to myself, look, you're going to sit down on the computer and you're going to just stare at the computer or you're going to write, but either way you're going to do four hours. And so I would log these hours and that's how I got the book done. And sometimes you start the first 15 minutes and you just lose yourself. And that's the magic of writing, right? And then sometimes you'd be just grinding. I should say I would just be grinding for four hours. And then sometimes I lose myself and I'd write eight hours in a day, probably eight hours is about the max. But, um, if I were to add up all the hours, I don't know. It would be hundreds, hundreds and hundreds of hours. Um, it and took the me a book, long time. The book is not a small book. <laughs> it is, how many pages is it? It's about 400. Yeah. This, this one's about five. We'll probably end up being about five. Wow. So good for Any Audible. screenplays? Any uh, screenplays or any bites there? Uh, Nick Guta is the... Uh, the um, director producer who owns the rights to straight pepper diet. And he is, he pitched it. It was really hot property or, you know, I don't know. Hollywood is like that. You know, you, until you got money in your hand, it doesn't mean a damn thing. Correct. But it seemed to be a pretty hot property. He had met with a lot of the you know, HBO and Matt Damon and a lot of big names. And, um, you know, I thought it was going to get a bite, but then but then Trump got elected and a lot of things changed as far as the tone of stuff that they wanted in the media. They wanted to mm. having racy stuff from coming out from the left wasn't um, wasn't on the table. So it pretty much just quashed that. But with the second book coming out, he's he's kind of excited about that because he wanted to do a series and not a screenplay. Uh, and she said with the material from the second book, maybe it'll, maybe it'll reignite, but you know how that is. It's a, it's a lot. Mm -hmm. I mean, it hasn't even been optioned, you know, it's like just getting an option is a lot. I know, I know guys who wrote books who've got two options and they've never even had a screenplay written. This actually mm -hmm. has a, 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 a screen written on it for a, for a series, which is really good. The guy that wrote, um, Nick Guta wrote it. He took mine and wrote it. It's the first chapter of the book. And, um, yeah, it's it's yeah, might happen. So the cool. name of the, the what's the name of the second book? The Paul's Graph Revelation. Where did that come from? Paul's Graph is a is a um, it's a uh, landmark decision about foreseeability in the context of a negligence cause of action, which is negligence is the most common uh, civil wrong, which is like you know if you were to cause a car accident, you'd be sued for negligence. So foreseeability is an issue of negligence. So the issue is like, how far out does your negligent action go? So if you cause a negligent action, but it's 10 steps down the road that it actually injures someone, are you still liable for that injury? And you're, what the hell does that have to do with me, right? What it has to do with is my coming to my truth about that night, that incident that happened that night, was it a freak accident or was it not, was it actually kind of foreseeable? Um, and, and I address that in a factual way and a spiritual way. And obviously this, well, not obviously, I hate it when I say obviously all the time, um, spiritual, obviously, uh, uh, spirituality 
like a slap in the face to people like obviously it's like no not obviously <laughs> just say it okay uh but the spirituality of it you know of like i don't believe in accidents or mistakes and that's the essence of the book is this revelation that i had around this and i i'm just fucking so excited about it i think it's really powerful hopefully people will agree with me and they won't just think it's a bunch of convoluted bullshit but i think it's pretty pretty interesting um it it has to do with my god that i came to believe in i had to move on from a doorknob god to a to a god that i could believe in and i'm a very practical guy i don't my i needed a god that that i could really grab onto that and i could grab onto like natural law and, and these things. And so there's discussions of law, science of mind, foreseeability. There's like all these things come together. And I think it's exciting. Well, I'm so glad I asked because that takes the yeah. book to a whole nother level. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Before it's just, oh, it's just continuation. Not really. <laughs> oh, no. no, no. <laughs> no, no, no. It's a lot more than that. <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, I just had this revelation of like, I don't know. I, it was, um, it's like, just, I, I'll, I'll tell you this, my belief in what happened that night. And if you read the book, you know what happened that night. If you don't, please read the book. <laughs> but what happened that, that night is I had this belief of that. I was a victim, right? I had this belief that I was a victim and that this radical, this thing happened. And, and I, I, you know, I kind of believe like, God, if anything else had happened, if that guy just would have woke up earlier, if I'd have went into a different window, if I'd have went in the window I intended to go in, it would just been an empty business. If this, if that, if that, I'm such a victim. I kind of still believe that, you know, I kind of still believe that, but I had this revelation that led me to something else that led me to believe that, that what happened that night in many ways was a perfect orchestration was a beautiful orchestration of exactly like you couldn't have choreographed it differently to me a more beautiful and perfect attack on my being that needed to happen in order for me to survive so you have this incident that involves nicotine addiction that involves alcoholism that involves um, sex addiction all rolled into this bizarre seemingly bizarre incident when in fact it wasn't a bizarre incident, it was perfect. I orchestrated it from my my soul. I orchestrated this thing to happen. It was exactly the belief system that I had inside of me that orchestrated this seemingly bizarre random. incident, random incident. But it wasn't random. It was mm-hmm. perfectly orchestrated, and that is kind of what the Paul's graph revelation is. Bam! Yeah. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> People, if whoever's listening to is going to run out and buy that book. <laughs> I hope so. I hope so. Because it is exciting, exciting. All right. So we've had, this is, we're going to wrap things up. So I just want to ask you one question. What is one parting piece of wisdom you would like to share with our listeners? Like, I knew you were going to ask us, and I, didn't I was gonna be like, I need to make sure I can answer this question when he asks it, and now I don't know, but I know what it is. I know the answer because it's always the same answer. It's like you know, you're you know inside of you, you know what's going on with you, and you know what this issue is. Don't let it fester. Lean into it. Lean into it. Like you go, like I don't give advice, right? I'm a 12-stepper, so I I'm I can I'm talking to myself here. 
I just like the, the more I grow, the more I can do this, the better off I am. And that is if once I see something arise, like lean into it, don't lean away from it. Don't ignore it, like lean into it. And that could be so painful. Like, cause we have issues around so many things I do around, you know, like for instance, like just to be blunt here, right? Like I was a sex addict who had this horrible experience around sex and like all this stuff. And then I had to figure out how to be intimate with a partner. And I had no idea. Like, yeah, I had sex with all these people and yet I had no idea how to like have sex loving, intimate sex with somebody. And I did not lean into that when I first got sober. I was like, hands off. I had, I got enough fucking problems. But at some point, I like leaned into that. And I'm still leaning into that and all kinds of other issues. And that's the only way I can have freedom around that is to break down the belief systems around that and like rebuild using the 12 steps and using all the other programs that I have, like Agape and Science of Mind and all these different spiritual principles that I've learned. So it's in two words, just like lean in. There's someone in the 12 step program that will help you there. If you just lean in, you'll find your answer. That is how we're going to close. That was magnificent. Thank you, Joseph. <laughs> oh, thank, thank you. Joseph. you all. <laughs> all right. Uh, I guess this is where I say we've now reached the end of our show. Thanks for joining us. And as we say here in Costa Rica, <laughs> Pura Vida. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Thanks, Cindy, Liz, Peggy, and Omar. Thank you. Thank All you. Right. Thanks so much for joining us, guys. Thank you for joining us today on the Recovery Revolution Podcast. For more information about the podcast, to access the show notes, join us in the Recovery Revolution or to learn about one-on-one coaching with me, then go to www.omarpinto.com. Make sure to check out the website or schedule a free consultation with me today. It's time to join the recovery revolution.